You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming out into the darkness, cold, potential rain uh, to um, participate in this project with us today. Uh, Firstly, we'd like to pay our respects to the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, um, who are the traditional custodians of this land that we are meeting on today. We would like to acknowledge um, the enforced and the unequal sacrifice of Indigenous people Um, on the coalface of resource extraction in Australia and also globally. We pay our respects to their ancestors and their elders past, present and emerging. Hi, my name is Sam Spur. Hello, my name is Eduardo Cairus and we are the Global Extraction Observatory or GEO, which is a research collective examining the aesthetics of energy production and resource extraction through creative practice, scholarship, and public engagement. Um, We would like to thank former and current collaborators, including Victoria Jackson-Wyatt, Nina Torrey-Henderson, Darcy Newberry-Dupe, and Bud Risk, who are present here today. By the way, for those who haven't done it, uh, there's QR codes that will take you to a Zoom uh, meeting through which we will broadcast images that um, illustrate the things that we are going to talk about. So if you haven't done that, hi Andy. (laughs) Great. Does anyone need time for that or everybody's fine? Cool, awesome. Of the Merriam-Webster dictionary definitions of the word humble, we would like to draw your attention to number 3A, which describes the word as an adjective used to designate something ranking low in a hierarchy or scale, unpretentious, insignificant. The definition suggests that someone or something, as it will be the case, can be described for its ambition to be transparent, to desire to pass unnoticed, and inclination towards egalitarianism. Humble can also be used as a name. In this case, the brand of an American oil company founded in 1911 in the city of Humble, Texas. Known as ExxonMobil since 1999, the former Humble Oil and Refining Company is today the largest private oil and gas corporation in the world, with an estimated net worth of $480 billion US. Almost 50 years after its foundation in 1962, Humble had a double-page, full-colour ad published in the February issue of Life magazine. On its cover, the issue portrayed astronaut John Glenn, only three weeks short of becoming the first American to orbit the planet. The Humble ad was composed by a striking photo of the Alaskan Taku Glacier, and a relatively short paragraph that said, 
Each day, Humboldt supplies enough energy to melt 7 million tons of glacier. Today, the humble ad is an accidental premonition of the magnitude of the conditions and effects that we as planetary subjects have the challenge and responsibility to address today without any further delay. Furthermore, the ad provides us with a few additional important insights. Contrary to the company's brand, the ad seems to have been designed to present humble as the opposite of an unpretentious, let alone insignificant enterprise. Instead, it suggests that Humble was a planetary force, one with an almighty capacity to alter the stability of our climate at an unprecedented speed and scale. In doing so, the ad recast human activity as a geological force, predicting the emergence and the notion of the Anthropocene half a century earlier. At the same time, and perhaps more importantly, the ad reveals how difficult it is to encapsulate such an incommensurable force. As such, the infamous ad presents us with one of the key concerns that we want to share with you today, which is the problem of representation of the magnitudes and complexities of what theorist Bruno Latour calls the new climatic regime. Architecture's constant wrestling with the problems of space at multiple scales and diverse materialities makes it an ideal discipline to engage with and visualize some of the most pressing issues of our time. The Anthropocene, global warming, big data, and late capitalism, just to name a few. These are issues that operate at scales and time frames that seem beyond our ability to think them, let alone comprehend, represent, and effectively communicate their effects in the world. Today we present part of our project Minefields, which looks at the aesthetics of coal extraction in order to address problems of representation in the new climatic regime with a specific focus on the Australian context. This project seeks to pass and clarify the ramifications of what we call mining ideology, a notion that describes the enmeshing of historical, mythic and political issues with economic and material ones, shaping Australia's particular national ethos and identity. The quote is the brutal but sincere confession that oil magnate Daniel Plainview makes to the man that claims to be his brother Henry in a key sequence of Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 film, There Will Be Blood. In the context of the film's narrative, this intimate and harrowing scene provides us with a deeper understanding of Plainview's extractivist ambitions and motivations, as well as of his narcissistic and misanthropic character. To transfer Plainview's unscrupulous character to the Australian mining context would be an opportunistic generalization, let alone a demonization of, the, of resource extraction industry. Simply, we don't have access to this kind of intimate information, which most certainly would help us to understand why someone like Australian mining magnate Gina Reinhardt, one of the wealthiest women in the world, strongly supports the further exploitation of coal seams while buying media chains and funding climate skeptic think tanks. What Plainview's confession gives us, and fittingly represents in the context of the slow-moving catastrophe that we are living through today, is an ideological position, 
an attitude that privileges the continuous growth of the extractivist industry over the cultural and biological systems that support humans and every other single form of life on the planet. Plainview's attitude can also be described as ideological, emerging from what we call mining ideology, or the system articulated by a group of convictions, traditions, and beliefs around the mining industry. In particular, coal. That seem to coalesce as a distinctively Australian collective subjectivity. Mining is the bedrock of Australia's colonial history and the extraction of minerals and fossil fuels has been at the forefront of Australia's prosperity and rarely interrupted economic growth. Propelling the development of urban centres across the country, Australian coal exports started in the early 20th century as England demanded vast amounts of coal spearheading the global transformation of Western nations towards industrialization. Australia is today the largest coal exporting country in the world. And the fourth producer. Conditions that make of a small regional city like Newcastle in the central coast of New South Wales, the largest coal exporting port in the world today. In parallel, the domestication of coal brought the carboniferous underground into the homes of a swiftly gentrifying modern world. While the profits from coal mining quickly escalated, the uneven distribution of wealth was most palpable in the homes of miners whose townships built around big holes in the ground would construct a legacy of community, resilience, and solidarity. Mining, in terms of both its exploitative working conditions and the sense of community that it brought men, women, and their families together would become the site of labor struggles and bitter industrial relation conflicts. The solidarity that brewed in the confined spaces of the mine would be mobilized into unions, which would prove tenacious in demanding better work conditions and security, fair wages, and responsibility over the health consequences of their work. Unfortunately, these companies' ongoing denial of the violence of coal mining is today replicated by the negation of global warming itself. The permanent destruction of the Yukon Gorge by Rio Tinto in May 2020 is evidence that mining ideology is also contested in the continual appropriation and destruction of Aboriginal land by colonial powers, an appropriation that is more than an issue of native title rights. Adrian Buraguba, the voice of the Wangan and Jaganligu people who are currently fighting Indian coal magnate Gutan Adani, says, If we lose that connection to land, there will be nothing left. We will be annihilated. We exist as people from that land. That's all, what, that's all we are. In Britain, the use of cartoons to convey the heroic role of coal in everyday life evidenced how the propaganda produced by the coal mining industry engaged representational methods directed at the family and the familiar. In cartoons like King Coal, produced in 1948 by the National Coal Board Film Unit, the dark matter of the underground was anthropomorphized into a benign and fatherly monarch who emerged from the depths of the coal mine to secure the ease and the wealth of contemporary life. However, this journey of ascending to the surface is reserved for cartoon kings alone. On the cover of the Italian weekly supplement La Domenica del Corriere, corresponding to the 18th of July 1958, 
A young Queen Elizabeth II is portrayed dressed in virginal white, projecting a kind of holy glow in the dark, Dr. Caligari-like setting of the coal mine. Her gaze into the viewer is of utter confidence, her posture feminine and relaxed. Her figure starkly contrasts to the rippling, testosterone-fueled energy that emanates from the male bodies that surround her, whose attention appears both sexual and aggressive. Her body coverings, protecting even her ears and neck, contrast to the glistening, perspiring, half-naked skin of the miners, whose coal dirt and sweat is made more apparent against the Queen's crisp white apparel. While the aim of the monarch's visit was no doubt a media event to connect the British monarchy to the working class, this image only heightens the vast disparity of class and gender that have always existed in coal mining. The embedded mythology of mining is impossible to restrain, in which an individual's sovereign rights extend to bodies as well as territories, a wealth both material and immaterial. In mining ideology, the figure of the astronaut is a refrain that keeps returning in many guises. In the coal mine, John Glenn's discovery of new worlds in outer space is inverted, with the astronaut descending into the underground to a different kind of remote darkness, but nonetheless unknown, unfathomable, and suffocating. In 1958, a real monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, went 15,000 feet into the underground at the Rhodes Colliery in Scotland to support a coal mine that would fail within five years. Most notably in Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth, subterranean fiction cultivated the mythology of the male explorer plunging into the forbidden and unknown depths of the underground to explicate a narrative of adventure, colonialism, and masculinity that still continues today. To your left in that image is suspiciously pristine attire. We see Tony Abbott, the former ultra-conservative Australian prime minister, who in 2013 infamously said, Coal is vital for the future energy needs of the world. Coal is good for humanity. The Prime Minister's heroic posture harks back to the stereotype of Daniel Plainview's character, a powerful and visionary white man, patriarch and leader looking ahead into the distant horizon. Although in this scene, he's in fact inside a narrow and suffocating mind tunnel. This is the enlightenment ideal of mankind, of humans as a force of progress, in which the patriarchal domination of the earth is both necessary and exemplary. Just like, real, just like the real mining queen, Gina Reinhardt, the donning of mining apparel simultaneously acts as a signifier of class, unity, and an act of disguise. Like Reinhardt's string of pearls, or Elizabeth's virginal jumpsuit, Tony's crisp white face mask betrays the ongoing reality of class disparity that exists in mining's labor dynamics. The quote is a transcription of the perplexing words with which now Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, then in the role of Treasurer, famously addressed the House of Representatives on the 8th of February 2017 while menacingly brandishing a lump of coal. At closer inspection, Morrison's hand, fingernails and sleeves still looked impeccable, even if handling such a large piece of coal would surely leave pitch black, dusty traces. You might think that such an observation seems trivial, 
but is in fact a representation of some of the complex and murky relationships that still exist between coal and politics in a country like Australia. In Morrison's words, and right hand, coal is simply a harmless object, but it could also be a deadly weapon. Glossed over in order to leave no trace, no fingerprints can adhere to the lump of coal, and no dust can be traced back to the subject's hands. The manipulation of this dark matter makes impossible the establishment of any direct connection. In other words, the Prime Minister's lump of coal, or clean coal, is nothing else than an alibi for dirty politics. Ironically, in June 2017, clean coal became one of the mantras of the most recently toppled Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Before Turnbull, the term clean coal had already captured the imagination of Australian governments in their intent to keep the industry alive and growing while placating the voting population's increasing concern for global warming. Of course, the term is at best misleading. While in fact certain technologies can be implemented to reduce carbon emissions and the toxic waste of coal combustion, many of them, such as carbon capture systems, are still in development and not enjoying the best prospects. The fact is that clean coal is an instrument to cleanse mining ideology's conscience, glossing over the devastating implications that fossil fuels clean or dirty has on our planet. Clean coal is a deceiving strategy, the brainwashing of the public with a fantasy that only seeks to guiltlessly perpetuate the extraction of what must remain in the ground. Clean coal is nothing else than the scrubbing of mining ideology's dirty secrets. And such dirty secrets are to be kept in the dark at all costs, including through the perversion of demanding strategies that are quintessential to the working class. Co-opted by ultra-conservative politics and funded by the mining industry, mining ideology has become entrenched in the contemporary narrative of Australian nationalism, particularly in the last few years. Here we see a demonstration against the proposal to tax the super profits of mining companies instigated by some of the wealthiest members of Australian society. The event staged in the city of Perth, the capital of Western Australia in 2010, would later be dubbed as the billionaire's protest. Mining ideology is a condition that goes beyond Australian borders. The reason why we need to see, to understand coal mining as more than a singular act or a simple development, more than just an industry. We see mining ideology as a complex system that operates across the political, spatial and environmental realms that is multi-scalar and atemporal, while at the same time large-scale and historically constituted. Coal, the carboniferous material that propelled the industrialization of the Western world into the 20th century, has been millions of years in the making, the result of a composting and compacting of ancient plants and animals through extreme and prolonged conditions of pressure and high temperature. Coal is a matter of deep time. As each lump of holds the alchemic history of a specific place transformed across time frames beyond human comprehension. According to philosopher Timothy Morton, hyperobjects are things that are massively distributed in time and space relative to humans. This concept describes with precision one of the key aspects of mining ideology. 
It is easy to rely on geographic coordinates to define the mine through its measurable site and location. And while the sheer size of contemporary mines can inspire awe when viewed, our comprehension is always stymied by an inherent condition that we call mining's porous territoriality. Just like hyperobjects existing across multiple scales, times, and materials, our failure to grasp the totality of its operations is this amorphous, seeping, transforming set of qualities. If we were to begin the additions needed to reach this totality, we would need to begin with a particle of coal dust flung in the air. Caught in a miner's lung or a small child's living along a coal transport route. At this point, to simply follow the particles that accumulate to the scale of atmospheric collapse is only one trajectory. But we could also look at other material concerns. What is known as the toxic legacy of mining has little respect for territorial boundaries, whose expansionist ambitions occur across materials, like water, soil, and air, and across timeframes from contemporary contamination into an unrestricted future. What we call porous territori territoriality describes an inherent characteristic of mining ideology, that the limits of the mining territory are diffuse, always falling beyond the representational frame. The image of mining is a reminder of what spills outside the frame, taken from extremely far distances in order to capture their sheer size. Forms become abstractions. Ambitions become geometry. Desertification becomes pattern. Erosion becomes texture. Pollution becomes fumato. What spills outside of the frame of this image is not just polluted water, but the form of the Anthropocene itself. The coal mine astronaut, with its body strapped and buckled, with a heavy breathing apparatus, communes momentarily with a small canary, his vital feathered companion of the underground. It was the unique capacity of their lungs, which used double the oxygen as human beings, that what, what made of these birds the ideal methane and CO2 gas detectors. Trapped in small cages, the tiny golden birds whose death were an immediate warning sign of invisible and potentially lethal atmospheric conditions, were only replaced with electronic detectors in 1986, a move met with deep nostalgia by the popular media of the time. Mining operates below and above the surface of the earth in ways more than the literal. The violence inflicted by mining on bodies begins at the scale of the systematic abuse of indigenous peoples through colonial slavery. The exploitation of bodies in the pursuit of profit would power the coal mining industry even after the abolition of slavery. In countries like the US, the brutal form of racial domination was simply replaced by a supposedly more civilized practice called convict labor. But this was only in appearance, as this workforce would be made of 95% of black and colored men who were obliged to work in coal mines as well as in the construction of America's infrastructure. Mining 
therefore, has operated out of sight and out of mind. A strategy that would be perpetuated en masse from the early days of coal extraction at industrial scale. For periods of up to 12 hours a day, children as young as 10 would toil in the most brutal and inhuman conditions. Their smaller frames made them ideal subjects to work as hurriers, thrusters, trappers, and breakers within the confined spaces of the mine. For these impoverished minorities, silenced due to their position in the social class hierarchy, the coal mines served to consolidate the spatialization of their social invisibility. You might think that this is a photographic relic that we present to manipulate you. But you would be wrong. Today, the exploitation of children is still rampant, resulting from our ever-growing need for cobalt and other precious metals to power our relentless obsession with laptops, smartphones, and so many other gadgets. UNICEF estimates that there are currently 40,000 children working in mines just in the Democratic Republic of Congo. However, the violence inflicted by mining ideology on bodies is not limited to those at the coalface, but to anyone that lives or works by the supply chains and far beyond. Inside out, at the microscopic scale, the dust particles that coat the bodies of those people remain invisible, even if they are more lethal. Hidden within the body, concealed behind layers of skin, the question of scale emerges as paramount, and not merely regarding size measurement or proportion, Similarly to the, capaci the capacity of canary lungs, which made them the ideal death warning systems, the fragility of the growing lungs in children might be seen as another warning, only this time dispersing the air above ground. A speck of fly ash depicted in this microscopic image is an abstraction of a lethal byproduct of coal combustion, which for instance in India alone kills 100,000 people a year, 10,000 of whom are children under the age of five. A similar abstraction is in this microscopic image of human lung tissue, exposing what is known as black lung disease or co-workers pneumoconiosis. The lethal illness is caused by the exposure to coal dust over prolonged periods of time. It is a scarring of the lungs that occurs as a microscopic coal dust permeates the living tissue. Globally, the irreversible condition kills an estimated 25,000 people per year. At this microscopic level, at such a close distance, the violence of coal mining becomes pattern, color, texture. This is not a polluted river delta. This is violence within the body. The cementation of an otherwise soft and porous tissue. Clot. Sediment. And after all, this is what remains an avatar of the Prime Minister's love of coal. A product of the accelerated fossilization of human tissue. A material transformation that manifests as pulmonary fibrosis. The violence that coal mining inflicts on the planet is much more complex than we think. Coal mining starts with a simple, almost primitive act. Called seismic refraction survey, a common method used to estimate the properties of what lies beneath the Earth's crust, requires only one human being blowing a sledgehammer strike on a metal plate prepared with sensors strategically positioned in a predetermined point in space. 
Mining, however, is a catastrophe not limited to a single event. In mining, violence must be understood through regimes that counter, to borrow Rob Nixon's words, the accepted assumptions of violence as event-focused, time-bound and body-bound. Nixon coined the term slow violence to describe the environmental violence that occurs gradually and out of sight, a violence of delayed destruction that disperses across time and space, an attritional violence disregarded as violence at all. Politically, the invisibility of events that fail to stand out as spectacular ensures their relegation and marginalization. Nixon's thesis is therefore to turn the dilated manifestations of slow violence into stories dramatic enough to arouse public sentiment. Mining is also concerned with a cumulative generation of voids at different scales. This directly connects extractivist activity with architecture, as well as for the formal, material and spatial transformations that it entails. Formal because the act of removing and extracting leaves visible scars and traces. Material because as a solid fossil fuel, coal can only be obtained through processes of material fragmentation, pulverization. Spatial, because coal mining is in essence a practice of material displacement, a process that creates new top topographies and geological accidents at an accelerated speed and scale. With this in mind, we ask, is coal mining a form of architecture? The nomenclature of mining is one of breaking, crushing, blasting, grinding, pulverizing. Here the technologies of extraction begin with a pickaxe, such as this one used in the early 19th century. The curved iron axe head is counterweighted for the swing of the human body, but remains senseless to the harsh ricochets that will extend from the hard rock face, through the arms and down the spine of the miner. For these early explorers beneath the surface, the mine presented another world that inverted positive and negative space. In his 1934 book, Techniques and Civilization, historian Louis Mumford described mining as the syntax of modernity. It was in the vast underground spaces that the limitless possibilities of advanced humor technologies found its zenith, in which surveying, construction, and extraction came together to develop the extraordinary energy supplies that would power the industrialized world. From the primitive pickaxe, the technology of the underground is now the creation of monsters. Beneath the surface, these subterranean beasts, now fully automated, eat the earth itself in a relentless narrative of destruction. This thing that you see on your screens could be a child's toy or a prop for a science fiction film or the resource extraction war machines. As invisible as the drones that hover above the surface, the underground casualties are not here instantaneous though, and the field of conflict not held to spatial antagonisms. Scale is hard to perceive in the underground, as is the materiality of the time even mammoth human technologies can appear flimsy. The visual violence of mining is the explosion, the war-like detonation, which is simply another instance of the pervasive spectacle of violence that affects contemporaneity. Anat Zing describes the need to live in the ruins of the climatic catastrophe that we have brought to on ourselves. But the ruins of mining are not only visible in the surface. 
in the scars of the extractivist landscapes. While harrowing them themselves, these formations function like icebergs, hinting at the vast structure enacted below. What you see here is the hall of the Coronet Mine near Kalgoorlie in Western Australia, a man-made space, itself a form of architecture, that exposes the fallacy that human engagement with the earth is limited to a shallow, almost dermatological relationship with the surface. Following this argument, we ask if superstorms like Florence, portrayed here, should also be described as man-made spaces. In her eye, is an, we find another hull, which our carbon footprints contribute to intensify and distribute with increasing frequency across the planet. This means that this photograph could be a representation of an emerging form of architecture, one that even if soft and partially predictable, can be quite costly, uncontainable, devastating, devastating and lethal. The violence, on the, the violence of, on the earth cannot be made distinct from its inevitable effect on bodies. Here we see the conflation of scale in which the natural disaster of climate change is met with tangible, personal, and physical consequences. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, climate change was most felt by marginalized individuals and groups. Slow violence is not felt equally around the world. And for many in the global south, such catastrophic violence is not a matter of the future. Photography, and in particular photojournalism, has historically played a key role in making visual, visual and tangible the horrors that occur outside of people's frames of reference. As Susie Linfield argues in response to the ongoing critiques made by the likes of Susan Sontag, Roland Barthes and Jean Berger on the capacity of photography to mobilise the public today, photographs can still show us in her words. The cruel radiance of what is. However, if we wish to do more than present what is, if we wish to communicate rather than only represent, what can the image do beyond documentation? In an age inundated by content devoid and readily available images, we consume them like opiates through never-ending scrolls of media feeds. This ubiquity has ne necessarily had to forgo part of photography's agency, including its agency as evidence, which has been part particularly damaged in the last few years, perhaps irrevocably. Bruno Latour wrote about the public distrust of public representation in making things public almost a decade before the term fake news became mainstream. The global context for Latour's book and exhibition was the Iraq invasion by the United States and, his and its allies based on the incontrovertible fact of weapons of mass destruction evidenced through a series of blurry satellite images. These images were not enough to stand as proof only becoming factual stand-ins through the mediation of Secretary of State Colin Powell's ultimately false explication. The question for us then is how to use or think representation in this volatile and problematic context. One way could be to embrace the technology of aerial photography, which drones have now made so widespread. However, as Lisa Park argues, what she describes as the vertical mediation that occurs between the ground and the imaging technology sets up a new system of power and control. By mimicking visualizations of war zones and territorial distribution, images like this, 
which betrays a coal-powered fire station, a coal-fired power station, fails to represent the political dimension of this new kind of conflict. The unfathomable scale of mining means that we are always panning back, further and further, in order to capture the extents of its material form. In doing so, what we lose is resolution, and in the same manner, the microscopic images of black lung disease are giving in to the abstraction of pixelation or pattern. The objective distance of scientific representation cleanses the dirt from mining. And what we see here is pure fact. An abstraction devoid of any effective capacity. This kind of seismic survey chart gives us another representation of the genesis of the mine, along with the figure of a single human being hammering the earth. Scientific representation, of course, never gives us purely objective reasoning. The maps, charts, and drawings which, which the quintessential romantic scientist Alexander von Humboldt created to document his travels and observations across the Americas incorporate the aesthetics of science with the aesthetics of art. Here the drawing performs a feat of material unveiling and scalar transformation in the bringing together of diagrammatic, sectional, and exterior forms of representation. And here we see the image of a tree and how the image uses affect to manipulate our understanding of mining. The ideal image of nature's fertility and generosity is co-opted by an industrial process antithetical to these ecological principles. This reframing under the guise of an explanatory image represents the coal industry as simply a part of nature's bounty. The drawing presents another act of duplicity and concealment that mining ideology has been adept at constructing. Latour argues that the crisis of representation might simply be that we have asked too much from it. Namely, representation without any representation, without any provisional assertions, without any imperfect proof, without any opaque layers of translations, transmissions, betrayals, without any complicated machinery of assembly, delegation, proof, augmentation, negotiation, and conclusion, end of quote. Today, the image as a form of representation is immediately suspect. And following Latour's argument, single images are no longer harbingers of some greater truth in the world. Our expectations and assumptions are continually subverted. Is this image a true representation of the reality? Can we find the tools that Barad calls for in the field of architecture? We mean not architecture as building. We mean architecture as a critical spatial practice. We mean architecture as a set of instruments and skills that can effectively and affectively contribute to the construction of new urgent narratives. Such narratives cannot be based on the aesthetics of excess produced by what Mark Fisher describes as capitalist realism, but on an aesthetic that instead seeks to tackle our global predicament and prompt political action. We mean a resistance aesthetics. An aesthetics for action. In action. An aesthetics occurring in public, private, and even institutional spaces like this one. 
and aesthetics propelled by conviction, care and solidarity. Care is understood as a speculative mode of thought about the possible, which as theorist Maria Puy de la Bellacasa argues, provokes a political and ethical imagination in the present. Redrawing feminist legacies of labor, it engages with the complexities of human and non-human relations, opening up connections with indigenous cosmologies to country. Solidarity is understood as an agency that rather than describing collective resistance as the mobilization of individuals that share things in common, defines what Judith Butler calls coalitions that are formed with otherness. Hannah Arendt described solidarity as establishing a community of interest, of interest between those that are oppressed and those that seek to ameliorate that oppression. The commonality of solidarity is not around things in common, but a shared care for the future, for what happens next. So let us partially conclude by returning to the beginning of this presentation with the, world, with the word humble. In response to its pretense of simplicity and insignificance, we propose an alternative approach through ideas that acknowledge the agential power of humans on the contemporary world we live in, yet refuses to give them a leading, let alone solo role in the planetary narrative of its future. And there was a glitch in the last slide, so sorry about that. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you, everyone. Are we opening up questions? <laughs> or comments or impressions or... Mics are open. Um, thank you very much um, for your presentation. Um, my question would be, um, what do you guys think we as individuals should do now? And um, what are your thoughts on activist groups like IMAC and... Uh, blockade Australia and Extinction Rebellion blocking the Newport. Um, uh, uh, what's it called? Newport Port um, <laughs> and um, Sydney recently, and uh, also this last week Exxon Mobile and Yarraville. Um, yeah, would love to know your thoughts on that kind of action towards that issue. <laughs> <laughs> I think what we were trying to do, what we've been trying to do with GEO, I guess GEO is as a particular kind of remit perhaps. It's, you know, the Global Extraction Observatory. We're trying to think about the agency of architecture in these kind of specific areas. I think um, that doesn't preclude other forms of activism, but it's trying to think through what are... You know, I, th I think it kind of behoves all of us to be thinking about how we mobilise the skills that we have um, accumulated over our lives up until now, whatever that looks like, and mobilise them for, for like, 
possibly one particular aim, which is to kind of rethink the world we live in in a in a in a moment of planetary crisis. Um, and uh, and so from from our point of view and the conversations we keep on having, it's about thinking through the spatial politics of this situation, and that architects bring particular skills and tools to the argument. Um, and so. Uh, I don't think there, there isn't one answer. I th you know, I think this is this is the answer that well, this is the um, the process that we bring. Um, and so it's about kind of mobilizing certain tools and skills, but particularly towards the end with this idea of resistance aesthetics, it's about um, thinking through philosophies of being. And so thinking through, you know, it's kind of interesting that you we end up. I think that there's a lot of people that are, are going back to philosophers like Hannah Arendt, you know, who was um, you know writing kind of post. The, um, uh, the Second World War and the Jewish genocide and thinking through these kind of complex ideas of what makes a society and what makes these ideas of solidarity. And I think um, uh, the kind of work that's happening in terms of, you know, eco-feminist thing, thinking around care and trying to find kind of ways that we can think collectively and together um, so I think these are kind of like underpinning philosophies and arguments that we're trying to work with. Um, uh, I don't know, do you want to? I can add something. And first of all, to acknowledge that that's a very hard and difficult question to answer. <laughs> because I wish anyone knew what to do in this, in this kind of climate. Um, I guess our interest is to try to find ways through which what we have been trained on and, and the things that we are interested in can sort of be mobilized from, from their kind of uh, preconceived spaces of operation, like architecture, design buildings. We, we, we're trying to sort of think of how the skills, the knowledge, the legacies of architectural thinking and producing can kind of feed into this practice of, of exposing, um, you know, these stories, these histories, um, where we can combine, you know, like spatial practice and, and images and, 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 and written text so in a combination of sort of different aesthetics practices that, that, that can, in the end, I think we're, our interest is to raise awareness, basically, and obviously, we were talking about this yesterday in another conversation in this very same place. We, we, we know that, of course, we don't have the capacity of other media um, to sort of reach. But, but I think, going back to your question, I think all the, the, um, the organizations that you have mentioned, you know, we can only contribute to that from our own sort of dis disciplinary kind of context, if you know what I mean. I seen, yeah, this is the kind of action that we're taking to try to um, raise awareness, change minds, uh, expose. Um, I was going to say, and it's worth saying, we're not just coming out of architecture, but coming out of academia. So, you know, I think there's a sense of um, we come with, there's one thing to say, well, we're in the kind of the, the hallowed, siloed ivory towers of academia and therefore, you know, what we have is not valuable in the real world. And um, I think our point is, is actually, you know, re research, history, criticality, these are all absolutely essential things that we need to be learning from and to be drawing from in order to think about this idea about what makes a future. 
because there are there are actions that need to be taken now, but there is also the importance of, you know, what happens next, you know, and what is the kind of world that we want to save, you know. Maybe it's not the same world that we have now. So um, I think we have a... We have a lot to kind of bring into that kind of those kinds of broader um, philosophical narratives that are that are spatial, that are communal, that are social, um, and and in many ways it's storytelling. It's essentially what we do. I, I think you mentioned something that is really important for us as well, which is um, we both work at universities, and that's such a contained space um, that it's hard to sort of reach out of it or outside of it. Um, that's why, you know, um, events like tonight for us is, are really, really important to sort of what we have been researching in that kind of space can be sort of brought outside, um, not through an academic paper necessarily, but through a conversation that can be productive in some ways. Um, so to, today for us is, is really great because I think it's the first time that we presented in a public forum that is not related to a university or an institution like that. So it, it, it involves a different public. Um, we are really interested in putting these ideas and these provocations out there um, and not just in that kind of the confines of, what was the, the weather they call the ivory tower of academia? Yeah, which is not an ivory tower, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a but, yeah, exactly. So I don't know if that answers your question. So in summary, no, we don't know what to do. <laughs> but but we are, we're doing this, this, this little contribution, I guess. Uh, and the invitation is to everyone try to make a contribution from their own sort of perspective and, um, and within the scope of their own kind of tools, instruments, possibilities. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the question. Um, sorry about the hard question. I also don't know the no, answer. No, no. <laughs> um, we always get asked the same question. <laughs> because people is kind of very keen on, okay, you have exposed all these terrible conditions. What should we do? What are we going to yeah. do about it? It's like... Yeah. Mm. yeah. The first yeah. step is to expose it, right? To, 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 yeah. Or to reiterate it because we know about these stories um, already. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess from like an activist point of view, we in our groups, like, always try to understand, like, how can we measure our effect? Uh, to what extent do we need to go to create some sort of impact? And, yeah, I just love hearing people's thoughts that have these insights of the history um, of coal mining, for example, and seeing if our actions are actually um, impacting some sort of change. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it seems interesting and fitting to have this conversation with the hum of the city behind us, like just city road kind of churning along in the background. All those um, lights on. Yeah. I can't <laughs> yeah, help but like acknowledge the context. Um, I had a question, I guess, regarding um, both outputs for the project, but also perhaps what the practice of architecture of drawing, diagramming, these sort of things, um, how that might come into the project and, and how you sort of have begun to conceive of the outcomes of the project, whether it is just, I mean, the lecture and, and the history format or if there's other things you're beginning to think about as well. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so many things. Yeah. <laughs> so many thoughts. And there, there's, there's lots of things in the pipeline. 
we, we don't see them as outcomes, as if this is kind of the preamble for those outcomes. We see these as an outcome itself. As in, you know, we're having this conversation and that for us is productive. And, 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 um, but, but this other formats through which we are trying to think through these ideas um, that are engaged with, uh, with making, with photography, with installation. Um, so, so yeah, we are right now working on a project that is called Cold Stories, which is kind of an exhibition uh, version of this, of this that we just exposed here today. Um, and involves that kind of media, that, those sort of representation systems. Um, this diagramming, this, this, um, you've helped us, you've helped us with, with, with that kind of activity. So, so yeah, there's, there's, there's several different ways in which we want to do it. But also, uh, I guess that for us is, is important like to, or not important, I think it's inevitable to, to move, and, and, and at the same time it's problematic, like not to work only within the academic context. So um, that gives us like kind of a foundation, I guess, to sort of reach. But what I'm trying to say is, for example, is that that exhibition is one of the things that we're working on. But on the other hand, we're working in other projects that are more kind of like academic, that only help to kind of have a better kind of foundation to then experiment a little bit further. So it's interesting because I, um, again, I, I, I don't think, obviously, if you say, okay, architecture was part of these, probably a lot of people would say, no, it wasn't. But I guess it is because that's how we have been trained, you know, the world in which we kind of operate day in, day out. And it's what influences the way that we tell this story, um, this sort of experiment of, you know, working with the limitations of, you know, when we started the conversation with M Pavilion, we were disencouraged to have, they don't have screens or anything like that because, you know, it's bright and so on, not today, but, so, so we decided to experiment, okay, how we broadcast these images, because this is a lecture that without images, it doesn't work. Like, we, we refer to the images a lot of the time. So, um, yeah, perhaps not. That's why we, we like to see architecture as an expanded form of aesthetic practice that incorporates other media, disciplines, techniques. Um, yeah. But we're not designing buildings at all. <laughs> If that's why you and you know that. <laughs> uh. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the point, um, and it would, it would be interesting to know how successful it is, but I mean, you know, in terms of, though difficult to measure the idea of success, but this idea about, you know, the image having done it with big screens and some really dramatic, amazing screens, and of course some of these images are extraordinary, so they have this kind of incredible impact when you see it on a big screen. And we wanted to explore this idea that we're so used to now looking at images, even if they are dramatic and amazing, on our phone, and how it shifts. I mean, these are, these are all ways to enact and therefore kind of perform these arguments around solidarity and, you know, like, you know, what does it mean to have a group of people that get together, particularly in this kind of you know, pandemic scenario and they come out to a space and they look on their phones and, you know, what does it mean to be looking at an image and having someone tell you a story 
you know, that two metres away, um, that's live. And what does that mean to sit next to someone and sit very close to someone who's also looking at an image and you're together but you're also separated from them? So, um, you know, we're interested in, you know, those sorts of social um, scenarios, those sorts of social scenarios in how we um, relate and engage and interface with, with images and images that um, have the power to shape our belief systems and our approaches to the world and to issues that are as kind of essential as, um, you know, as what happens tomorrow and how we live and whether our children will be able to kind of like walk outside and all of these kinds of things. These images are shaping them and how do we, how do, we do that together, not just, not just separately? Um, so we, that, that is as much an architectural question though as, as a building, I think, for us, you know. can be married. <laughs> Unless there's anyone else who wants to say anything else. Um, thanks very much for coming today. We really appreciate it. Uh, so if you want more, <laughs> uh, tomorrow we're presenting um, the next part of this project, which is around the, uh, the, the, the fuel and the energy source of lithium. And, um, and lithium is incredibly interesting because it's, it's a new mineral. It is, the, um, it is the, the kind of the glamorous face of a decarbonized future. It is the kind of the hope for our planetary crisis. But um, as per the title of our talk tomorrow, it has, it has many side effects. There's, so, a, there's a dark side to it. There's a dark side to we lithium. We want to talk about. Yeah. So um, tomorrow we'll be exploring the idea of lithium. So you're more than welcome to come. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.